0: Thank you, Jack. And thank you all for coming out on a snowy night. And I, I would like to thank Jim Sopranos also for making my trip here possible. I'm actually in the archives during the day. And then when Jack said, would you lecture on your book at night, I'm like, sure, why not? So, but I have to admit, I probably have not addressed an audience where so many people have already read the book. Right? <laughs> so how many have at least started it? How many finished it? How many just think we should just chat about it? (laughs) All right, well, I had a lot of fun writing this book. I have to tell you, though, it was not my idea to write it. It was uh, Rob Tempio of Princeton University Press. He uh, took me out to dinner. That's the best way to get me to write a book. Take me to dinner. And he said, I'd like you to write a book about the collapse. And I said, well, anybody could do it. I mean, there's numerous people in this audience could be writing this book. Uh, And I said, and it's been done before. In fact, you guys published a book yourselves about 20 years ago. He said, yeah, but there's been a lot of advances, right? And I said, sure. And he said, well, I'd like you to do it. And I said, I'll do it on one condition. Um, Let me write about what collapsed as well as how it collapsed. Because to me, the Late Bronze Age, I think, is the most fascinating period in the history of the world. Uh, if I could live any time, I would choose the Late Bronze Age. I'd probably be dead within 24 hours, but I think it'd be a lot of fun to live back then. So he agreed. He said, okay, look, as long as you give me part of what I want. So the beginning and the ending of the book are about the collapse. And the middle part is about the 15th, 14th, 13th, 12th centuries. my favorite time of the world. And uh, uh, I had a lot of fun writing it. But then he said, um, in, re- in return, though, If I let you write about what you want, you have to let me do a book trailer. And I said, what's a book trailer? And he says, you know, like a movie trailer? I said, yeah, sure. I've never heard of one for a book, though. He says, oh, it's all the new rage. Like, really? I've never seen one. So he sent me a link, and I had clicked on it. And this poor guy at some campus holding his book saying, hi, I've written a book. Please please buy it. And I, I, I called Rob up and I said, I will not do that. I, even I have my limits. And he said, no, 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 I want to do something completely over the top. And so um, I actually engaged one of my ex-students who runs a, a film press studio, uh, Jesse Krinsky. And so we made this completely over-the-top trailer of about 53 seconds long. I don't know if it affected the sales at all, but it was a lot of fun to make. So anyway, we'll, we'll see. But um, if you want, I've got it. Do you want to see it? Yeah? Okay, let's see if I can get the thing working. Bear with me. It's totally over the top. I admit this. Uh, but let me see if I can get it working. We'll see if the sound works. that helped the book sales or not, but it was fun to make. (laughs) And they now, uh, he just signed a guy to a book contract and the guy said, I want a book trailer. Okay, fine. (laughs) All right. Okay, so serious now, serious now. All right, what I want to do is talk about the collapse that happened about 1200 BC. Uh, Familiar to many of you? It's a collapse that I think the world has never seen until, say, the collapse of the Roman Empire. Uh, And even that may pale in comparison here. So let me show you tonight what I mean by that. And I'm I'm fully aware that I'm not the first one talking about collapse, right? That's probably Edward Gibbon uh, with the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And then Joseph Tainter, uh, The Collapse of Complex uh, Societies, back in about 1988. And then I imagine, how many of you have read Jared Diamond's book, The Collapse? Right. So um, the one difference is that those authors were all talking about one society. And what I'm talking about is multiple societies that all went down at once. So they're talking about the Romans. They're talking about the Maya, the Indus Valley. But we're talking about about eight civilizations that all went down at once, and it's not just that they were eight different societies or civilizations, but they were intertwined, they were interwoven, they were globalized, if you want to call it that. Now, globalization back then is a little bit different about you know, from today. It's a smaller world, for one thing. But if you take a look at something like a, a small world network diagram, this is something my wife works on, uh, Diane Klein, and so she made this diagram for me, and you can see that uh, there are links between most every one of these civilizations. Uh, If you're familiar with Kevin Bacon, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Same thing back then. Uh, If you didn't know somebody, you knew somebody who knew them, and so everyone is connected back then. Now, the Late Bronze Age and us today are two of about the only instances I can think of where people are that interlinked, that interwoven, that globalized. So, I actually think that there's more comparison to them back then than you might suspect. Now, we're talking about period from about 1700 to 1200 BC, late Bronze Age. Here's some of the people that are living back then, and I call them the G8, uh, fudging a bit. <laughs> And actually, if you count them up, you've got the uh, Aegean, Egyptians, Hittites, Canaanites, Cypriots, Mitanni, Assyrians, Babylonians. There are eight there, but I'm fudging because the Aegeans got both Minoans and Mycenaeans. So, but G9 just didn't have the same ring. But uh, they, are, they are all interconnected. And then when they collapse, pretty much everything goes down. Now, a lot of people say, um, you know before I read this i didn 't think I knew anybody back then, and but in an audience like this i mean i don 't have to tell you that this period has everybody I mean Hatshepsut, King Tut, Ramses the II, second, Ramses the third, my boy Amenhotep the third, Akhenaten I mean this is all this is that period, and this is the time with the Battle of Kadesh and the Trojan War if it took place, and the exodus if it took place and Yes, we do have uh, arguments about that at home and everywhere else. So this is a period that actually more people are familiar with than realize. And they go, oh, I didn't know that's when they lived. So this is a period that when it does collapse and everything goes down, uh, interlinked, almost like dominoes, as I want to show you. And and when it does collapse, the world loses an amazing amount of knowledge. And uh, we get into the world's first dark ages. So I do think that it's a collapse that the world hadn't seen and will not see again until the Roman Empire collapses. So uh, the big question is, of course, what caused it? And this is still a mystery today. Uh, I will tell you right now, spoiler alert, I don't know what caused it. I think I have some ideas about it, but uh, there is no real smoking gun, quite literally, out there. But let me present to you some of the possibilities, and then see see what you think. So, the original hypothesis is that the Sea Peoples did this, those wacky people coming running through the Mediterranean twice in 1207 and 1177. Uh, I suppose better would be to say the fifth year of Merneptah and the eighth year of Ramses III because you Egyptologists keep changing the numbers on me, right? Uh, In fact, when the book came out, I got an email from a senior friend of mine in New York City who simply wrote, he, he said, uh, the title should have been 1186. <laughs> I sent him back a two-word email. No, no, it's not what you think. I wrote, I said, it was. And indeed, back when I started writing the book in about 2008, the, the contract says... 1186 B.C. By the time I finished it, I said that we've got to change it. It's going to 1177. So somewhere, somewhere in there. But the Sea Peoples come through the region twice, uh, and we know the story from Medinet Habu, which is a place very familiar to the O.I. here. Uh, when the uh, Medinet Habu was excavated and they found the wall reliefs, Gaston Maspero, one of the earliest French Egyptologists, already blamed the whole collapse of the Late Bronze Age on the Sea Peoples. And he had already formulated this by like the mid-1800s. And so it was kind of set in stone, as it were, by about 1901. This is well before any of the sites that they were supposed to have destroyed had actually been excavated. So after that, every time somebody found a site and it was destroyed, they said, oh, it's, it's got to be the Sea Peoples. But this is kind of backwards, I think you will agree. But we have the full story. Uh, Ramses III tells us about this. It, it's the text that goes with the pictures. So I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but give you an idea. He says, the foreign countries made a conspiracy in their islands. All at once, the lands were removed and scattered in the fray. No land could stand before them, their arms. And, and then he names the places they overran. And we know where they are, right? From Hatay, that is Turkey, Kode and Carchemish, and Arzawa on the western coast of Turkey, Alashia, namely Cyprus, uh, all of them were cut off at that time. A, a camp was set up in Amur, that is northern Syria. They desolated its people. Its land was like that which has never come into being. Uh, and then he ends up naming them. He says their confederation was the Peleset, the Tejeker, the Shekilesh, the Denyan, and the Weshes lands united. And he beats them. And he actually tells us in uh, the Papyrus Harris, written about year 12 or so, says, I overthrew those who invaded them from their lands. I slew the Denyan who were in their isles. The Tejeka and the Peleset were made ashes. Shordana and the Weshes of the sea, they were made as those that exist not. All right now, he's calling them the people from the sea, the people from the islands, but you know, and, and the people from the north. But if you go north, pretty much everybody is from over on that region. So they didn't actually call them the Sea Peoples. That's, that's us calling them that. Uh, but if you want to figure out how to, how to dress like one, it's quite easy because they've got all the, the pictures right there. Uh, in fact, for you know next Halloween, you could go as a sea person if you want. Uh, it's actually a very cheap costume. When I was in graduate school, uh, the two people the year behind me showed up at the Halloween party with um, lots of letter Cs all over, probably 100 of them. And I said, "What are you?" They said, "We're sea peoples." <laughs> oh, it can be a very cheap costume. So, but Ramses, you know, he tells us their names, but he doesn't tell us where they're from. So we've been playing, you know, linguistic guessing games. So the Sardana, I mean, name me a place in the Mediterranean that's got the same type of consonants. Sardinia, right? So maybe they're from there. The Shekalash, again, place with consonants, maybe Sicily. The Tujaker, who knows? Maybe the Sickles or the Troad. Denyan people like to say these are Homers, the namely the Mycenaeans. The Weshesh, maybe from Troy, who knows? It's only the Peleset that we think we know. These are the Philistines. And in fact, Champollion had already made that assignation way back when. Uh, and the Bible actually says the Philistines come from Crete. So if you want it to, to work that way, you can. But there's a problem, because there's not a single site that we can point to where we say these people came from. And it's quite possible that they went to Sardinia or Sicily after they're defeated. You know, We don't know if they're coming west to east or east to west. So it is still all quite a great mystery. Uh, We do have Philistine settlements, of course, from the region of Canaan, Israel, Lebanon, Syria. Lots of work going on right here. And I think Aaron Meir lectured here on the Philistines not so long ago. The one thing to remember, though, is uh, with the reliefs at Mednit Habu, they're not just showing Vikings coming through, they're showing a migration. Right? It's not just single warriors, but you've got women and children and ox carts. And so this is a, a whole migration of people. And so it used to be that people said, and not even used to be, people still say it now, that there was a drought, it led to famine, that led to movement of sea peoples, that led to havoc and cutting of the trade routes and that led to the collapse and indeed you know maybe that is what happened but i would say that's probably too simple and too simplistic right everything is a lot messier than it than it should be so if that's too simple i would ask what really happened and that's what i'm going to present to you Tonight we're not going to go through the whole book. That would take three or four hours, though I'm happy to do it if you want to. But uh, let me just present to you some of the major hypotheses for what caused the collapse and then see if we can bring it all together. But I would start out by saying that this is a globalized society as far as I can tell. and You've got everybody happily uh, linked with everybody else. Uh, and in part, what, what serves as a very good example is bronze itself. I mean, we're in the Bronze Age, 3000 to 1000 BC, but specifically we're in the Late Bronze Age, actually almost the Middle Bronze Age as well. And of course, bronze, you make it tin plus copper. Uh, if you're not so smart, you'd use arsenic instead of tin, but you're not going to live very long. But copper is no problem, right? Copper is going to come from Cyprus. The tin at that time, there's a number of different places, southeastern Turkey. Maybe you're intrepid enough to get up to Cornwall. But the vast majority seems to be coming from off the map here, namely uh, Afghanistan, the Badakhshan region. Uh, in fact, anybody wearing lapis lazuli jewelry? Anybody have any? All right. So that's coming from uh, the same approximate location. So we've got texts that tell us that the tin is coming all the way from Afghanistan. We've got one text at Mari that talks about Tin coming to Mari and then going to Ugarit on the north coast of, Cyprus, of Syria. And there it is being met by and then transported on to Crete by Minoans. And in this text, it talks about Kaftorian merchants, and that's the name. Kaftor is Crete. So imagine if that trade route is cut at any point in any time. That's really going to cause a crimp in your metalworking uh, facilities, and that may in fact have been part of what happened at the end of the late Bronze Age. In fact, a friend of mine, Carol Bell, whom some of you know in England, made the analogy that tin back then uh, is like oil today, and so she said the procuring of tin probably you know transfixed the mind of the king up in Hatusa. And the, the pharaoh down in Egypt, just like getting oil today for American SUVs is uh, fixating the president. So I think that's actually a pretty good parallel, a nice little analogy, oil and tin. But the Mari letters tell us other things, too. Uh, these are 1800 BC, right? time of Hammurabi, uh, the law code guy. Uh, and in these uh, texts in the Mari archives, which is a little bit before our time, but it serves to demonstrate what, uh, what was going on at that time. There's one letter, for example, that talks about a Kaftorian weapon, that is a Minoan weapon. The top and base are covered with gold. Its top is encrusted with lapis lazuli. This is not the weapon uh, that it's describing, but it's one that probably looked fairly similar. I don't know about you, but I would love to have one of these. I right, just walking around on campus, just I mean, maybe I'd need a concealed weapon permit, I don't know, but that would be fun. Uh, one of the other letters and I have to admit it's my absolute favorite talks about a pair of leather shoes I'm presuming they're sandals that, uh, in the Kaftorian style, that is so Minoan sandals, which uh, to the palace of Hammurabi that is the Hammurabi, uh, a man named Bach Lim brought, uh, brought, but which were returned. I've never understood that. Now, these are gifts coming all the way from Crete, and Hammurabi couldn't be bothered to accept them, right? I mean, were they too small? Were they were they so last millennium? I mean, he could have at least accepted them and re-gifted them, right? Here, I got these. They're too small, but they're from Crete, and so... I had my students at one point go through Hammurabi's entire law code and wouldn't you know it, there's not a single law, there's not a single penalty for returning shoes. (laughs) All right, so we've got this globalized society, it's merrily churning away, everybody's trading with everybody else, everybody's marrying royal daughters and so on and so forth. Into that drop a little bit of chaos and one by one all of the societies start to wink out and actually not even one by one but pretty pretty uh, fast. The only one left is Egypt and even that's a Pyrrhic victory because it's really so weakened it's never going to be quite the same again. So the way I would phrase it is that the world in 1200 was quite different from the world in 1100 and completely different from the world in 1000 BC and that's what we're looking at here. So how do you get to that point. So it, it used to be that everybody just blamed the sea peoples. And I, the sea peoples are part of it for sure, but I think in some ways they're as much victims as they are oppressors. Uh, I think they're, they're not the cause, they're part of the, you know, part of the problem, but they're not the problem. So I want to look at some of the other things that people have suggested, namely drought and famine and uh, invaders and earthquakes, and see if any of them could have played a role as well. So let me go through these fairly quickly, but one by one and present the evidence that we've got and see if we can come to some sort of agreement as to what caused this collapse. So first of all, drought. Drought, This isn't a new idea. Reese Carpenter at Bryn Mawr College suggested this back in about 1966. He said that drought had ended the Mycenaean uh, world, but he didn't have real proof for it. He had some population movements, but he didn't have the hard data. Well. I think we've got it now. And it's recently, in the last couple of years. So for example, David Kanyuski, a French scholar, and his team have been working at Gabala in North Syria. And they did some pollen cores based on their findings. They said that there is a drought in that region in the 13th and 12th centuries, which lasted for up to 300 years or so. So looking at the pollen, they said it became drier, it became more arid. This is the type of data that uh, Reese Carpenter was looking for, but didn't have. Now, they also went over to Cyprus, to Teki, did the same thing, and they published this in 2013. The lagoon there, they took uh, samples, and again, they said that there is an event there from 1200 to you know, 800 or so. Again, drying out, more arid, looks like a drought. And then um, Brandon Drake, in 2012, in between, uh, put out three separate lines of evidence that he had collected, including the fact that the surface of the sea in the Aegean uh, had changed temperature. And that's going to affect the precipitation, how much rain you get on the land. And this He published it in the Journal of Archaeological Science. I was so taken with this article, I thought it was absolutely fabulous. So I I wanted to send him an email and congratulate him, I have no idea who this guy is. So I Googled him and the first thing that came up was, you are friends with him on Facebook. (laughs) I'm like, seriously? So I sent him an email and I'm like, you know, dear Brandon Drake, apparently we're friends on Facebook. He writes back, Eric, we dug at Megiddo together in 2006. (laughs) I'm like, wait, that was Lee Drake. He says, yeah, Brandon Drake and Lee Drake are the same guy. I'm like, ah, Lee, okay. So be careful. If you think you don't know somebody, they may be friends with you on Facebook. (laughs) At any rate, all of this, I think, is very good evidence for a drought. But then uh, pretty much the final peg was um, a study that Daphne Langut and Israel Fankelstein and uh, Thomas Litt put out in 2013 where they went to the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee and again doing pollen cores, and they also found evidence for uh, a drought, but a shorter one, from about 1,250 to 1,100 at the most. Uh, And so there, um, I think that was it. In fact, this study came out when my book was in press. Like, I had read the final proofs. It was done, and I I sent an email, and I, I said something I always wanted to say. I said, stop the presses. they said, we don't use presses anymore like that. (laughs) Like, oh, well, stop, whatever it is. And they said, "You, you can't add this in. I said, if I don't add it in, the book will be outdated before it even comes out. And they said, well, you can't do overflow. But if you can find a page or two where you end halfway down the page, you can add in enough to take it to the bottom of the page, but not go on to the next one. So I think if you look through the book, you'll see I discussed their article in two places. And in both places, it's at the end of the chapter. So, but I was very grateful for them to do it. So I think now we've got the evidence that Reese Carpenter was looking for. I think there's no doubt that we've got the scientific evidence that there was a drought at that time. And, in fact, there's even more evidence, uh, I believe, out there. Uh, but, of course, the world's media seized on this, right? I don't know if you remember the articles that came out as each of these groups uh, may, mentioned their finds. So the New York Times uh, came out, pollen study points to drought as culprit in Bronze Age mystery. And the LA Times, climate change may have caused demise of late Bronze Age civilizations. National Geographic got into it. Archeology span Magazine, drought may have caused Bronze Age collapse. Even a New York Post, they managed to put globalization in as well. <laughs> And then, of course, there was the famous study that was supposed to be um, uh, funded by NASA in which they said that we are going to collapse in coming decades. And at that point, I got a little fed up, and so I decided to write my own op-ed and put it in the Huffington Post, and uh, I was trying to figure out a good, a good title for it. And my daughter said, well, you know, it's like Facebook again. She so says, the collapse of civilizations, it's complicated. So, there's been a lot of debate, a lot of discussion about this, and I actually think that's in part why the book has resonated with some people, is because debate about climate change is going on today, debate about whether climate change was going on back then. But if you've got some sort of drought, it's going to have ripple effects, or not even ripple effects, things like famine. But famine can be very hard to find in the archaeological record, right? unless you find dead bodies. Things like that. But if you have written texts, that's where you're going to get your evidence. And so that's where a site like Ugarit, where we already met our Minoans waiting for their tin, uh, the archives at Ugarit shed some light on this. So we have a text, for example, from the house of Ortenu, talking about a famine that is ravaging the city of Imar somewhere around the year 1185. And it says in the text, There is famine in our house. We will all die of hunger. If you do not quickly arrive here, we ourselves will die of hunger. You will not see a living soul from your land. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a pretty good uh, indication that there was famine. But just in case you're not convinced, here's a letter from the king of Ugarit to somebody we don't exactly know whom, but he says, here with me, plenty has become famine. So there you go. There is famine uh, in Ugarit. And even... Uh, up in, uh, in Anatolia, the Hittite king, do you not know that there was a famine in the midst of my land? It's a matter of life and death. So there is, I think, no argument that there is famine at that time. And with that, then, perhaps there were invaders. Perhaps there was internal rebellion. You know, everything that goes with problems, especially if the lower class is going to rise up in rebellion. So were there actually invaders? Was there actually internal rebellion? Well, Again, the text tell us as well as the archaeology so here 's another letter from the King of Ugar, written to the King of Cyprus, and he says, "Now, my father, the ships of the enemy have come uh, they 've been uh, trashing my, my country. Uh, if anybody sees any more ships, please tell me. Well, the thing was, when I was in an undergrad and in graduate school, they always taught me that this was found in a kiln." and that it was being baked before it was going to be sent off to Cyprus. But, of course, that's a little bit too good of a story. It was a wonderful story, but our re-examination of its fine context shows that it's probably not in the kiln. It was in a basket that fell from the second floor along with about 70 other tablets, and they landed upside down. The basket disintegrated but left a kiln shape. So if that's true, then we don't actually know which invasion this is. Maybe it's the 1177 one or a little bit earlier. Maybe it's the 1207 one or a bit earlier. But this isn't actually as helpful as we might have thought. And yet it does talk about the ships of the enemy. So if you want to talk about invaders, this would be uh, one part of the evidence. There's a private letter, one of the last ones from Rugarat. He says, When your messenger arrived, the army was already humiliated, the city was sacked, uh, our food and the threshing forest was burnt, and the vineyards were also destroyed. Our city is sacked, may you know it, may you know it. So, again, textual evidence, kind of hard to argue with. The only problem is we don't actually know who is doing it. We know they're invaded, but we don't know uh, by whom. So, um, Kanayuski, when they were at Gibala, uh, identified the Sea Peoples. And they put it at a specific date, 1192 to 1190, which is very specific using radiocarbon. I think I know how they got there. But I'm also not so sure that we can just blithely identify sea peoples there. There are um, arrowheads and there's pottery that look Sea People-ish, that look Philistine-ish, but that doesn't mean that they're the ones that torched the site. It may mean simply that they resettled afterwards. So this is an ongoing debate, but they actually published their article saying it was the Sea Peoples with a specific date, and I think that might be a little too hasty, though it will um, provide further debate. The only problem is, and I give you this uh, Canaanite Hatsor as an example. Even if your city is destroyed, you don't always know who did it. And you're not always sure exactly when it happened. So at, at, at Hatsor, we know it's destroyed. The late Bronze Age palaces, torched, the mud bricks are all burnt, uh, cherry red and brown and black. Um, but we don't know if it's 1230 or if it's 1180. They did find um, some wheat and the radiocarbon should help us out there, but don't quite know what it is yet. But even the co directors couldn't agree on who destroyed Hatsor. So Amnon Bentor suggested that it might be Egyptians or Canaanites or Israelites or the Sea Peoples, and he ruled out the Egyptians and the Canaanites because there are statues that are mutilated there, both Egyptian and Canaanite ones. He said, Egyptians wouldn't have mutilated Egyptian statues. Canaanites wouldn't have mutilated Canaanite statues. Um, and it's too far inland for the sea peoples, he said, which I would disagree with. But, and so for Ben Tor, that left the Israelites with Joshua and all that. And indeed, Hatzor is mentioned in the Bible as being uh, burnt to the ground. Uh, but his co-director, uh, the late Sharon Zuckerman, said, no, only the palace and the temples are burnt. And that, for her, was a symbol of internal rebellion. She says, this isn't outside invaders. It's the the lower population rising up in rebellion. So my point would be that if the two co-directors of the site can't even agree on who destroyed their site, then I don't know how we're going to. And this is symptomatic. When you have a site that's destroyed, yes, you can see it's destroyed, but you don't always know who or even what destroyed it. So for example. Earthquakes are probably responsible for quite a number of the destructions that we've been attributing to the Sea Peoples, but it can be very, very difficult to tell. So here's a map, for example, of most of the sites that were destroyed in the catastrophe, around about 1,200. Uh, In fact, a 50-year period from 1225 to 1175. If you overlay on top of it a map where earthquakes have happened in the last century, since 1900, you can see that most of the sites are actually in active seismic zones. And in fact, there are fault lines that run across this region. You've got the light blue one that's the North Anatolian fault line. You've got the green one coming down on the coast of Greece. Uh, You've got, of course, the one coming up the Great Rift Valley where the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee are. This, This whole area is active seismically. And one thing people don't realize, which I thought was um, kind of neat when I learned it, uh, there are, if you have an earthquake and it doesn't release all the pressure in the fault line, you'll have another earthquake right nearby very soon thereafter, maybe days, maybe weeks, you know, a year at the most or so. And if it doesn't relieve the rest of the pressure, you'll have another earthquake and another earthquake and another earthquake. Amos Norr at Stanford University uh, and others like him who study this have uh, called the modern ones an earthquake sequence. But they also say that it happened in antiquity, and they call it an earthquake storm. So at one point, Amos and I decided to look at all this, and sure enough, we came up with a whole series that I think take place from about 1225 to 1175. But if you don't believe me, just take a look at the North Anatolian fault line. And on this map, you see a number from about 1939 to 1999. If anybody remembers that big earthquake that hit about 100 kilometers outside of Istanbul in, I think it was 98, 99, right? Thousands of people killed, a couple million, if not billion dollars in damage. That was just the last of a series of earthquakes that's taken place over the last 60 years. So I might suggest that the Aegean and the Eastern Mediterranean may have seen one of these earthquake storms as well. And what you want is um, not only bodies and things like that, but evidence that they're on an an active fault line. This is actually now my my favorite picture for showing this. You recognize it, of course, right? We're at the Lion Gate at Mycenae. But if you take a look on your left, underneath that big Cyclopean wall, you see the rock face coming down. What I didn't realize, and most people don't realize either, is that that's a scarp from a fault zone. That's one half of a slip line. So when the the seismologists all went to Mycenae, they said they started laughing. They said, you know, Mycenae is built directly on a fault line, and and look at this scarp. And when I heard that, I started laughing too. I'm like, who on earth would build their city on top of a major fault line? I'm like, oh wait, San Francisco, yeah, okay. (laughs) Right, I grew up in San Francisco, so I know earthquakes. At any rate, at Mycenae, we have houses that are destroyed in an earthquake, and we have victims as well. Uh, These two pictures, it's the same skeleton uh, being dug by uh, uh, Milonas, Noni Iloni Milonas, Uh, and that rock that she next to her head was actually in the skull. Uh, She was standing in a doorway, and the doorway collapsed and killed her. Also, just three kilometers away at Tirins, we've got um, women and children buried under collapsed walls that probably fell in an earthquake. And at sites like Troy, we've got tilted walls. There's the same one that I was just there in August. That wall should not be tilting like that. That's what happens in an earthquake. And even at Ugarit, right? Trust me, I don't think that wall was supposed to be that undulating, right? That's what happens in an earthquake. Now, sometimes it can be easy to tell that you're in an earthquake. If you find a site where you've got all the the columns from a Greek temple lying all in rows like toothpicks or dominoes, that's a pretty good indication. If you've got a site, um, I think like at Baalbek, where you have the keystones slipped out, in the archway. That's also a good indication, but you don't have that many arches back in the late Bronze Age, so we're dependent on on things like this. But there's something like 17 different bodies at about six different sites that I think are all attributable to earthquakes at this time. So I think we do have to count that as one of the possibilities. But I don't think that that's gonna bring an end to everything, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, But what about the cutting of the trade routes? I had said this was a very globalized period. And so I do think that if you cut the trade routes, you're going to be in trouble. So I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is near and dear to my heart, late Bronze Age trade. And so uh, I just wanted to show you a couple of quick examples of some of the contacts that are going on at this time. For instance, Hatshepsut's famous uh, embassy or expedition down to Punt, which he shows us on the walls of her mortuary temple. She t- shows us what is brought back. She even tells us the name of the queen, a woman named Eti. Of course, her problem has long been where exactly is Punt, but that may have now been solved looking at a couple of baboons from the British Museum, which is showing that it's probably Eretria, Ethiopia, which was one of the prime candidates. Now, Hatshepsut's not the first person to send um, embassy down to Punt. Uh, people do it uh, a couple of different times but that's one of the things that she's known for. But in her reign and in the reign of Tutmosis III uh, her stepson we've also got embassies coming or people coming from the Aegean. Here's the tomb of Rechmaray and the, we've got Aegean peoples bringing goods in here. Uh, also other tombs and you can see the one guy bringing a bull's head on it. That's got to be a Minoan there. So we've got contacts with Mycenaeans and Minoans and if you don't believe that my boy Amenhotep III and his colossi of Memnon right? the mortuary temple that they stood in front of is now long gone, it's being re-excavated right now but in the 60s and 70s a couple of statue bases were found, you can see just the bases here, 10 feet tall, high, Amenhotep III's. there's thought to be 10 of them at first, now they're up to about 40 of them and on the bases are topographical names, basically the world known to the Egyptians at that time. So one of them has names that have never been seen before in Egypt and basically never will be seen again. Uh, they mention places like Amnisos and Mycenae and Theon and Kithera. Uh, uh, in fact, Amnisos is on there twice, Knossos is on there as well. And the headers are Keftiu and Tanaya. Now, Keftiu is the Egyptian name for Crete, and Tanaya is probably the Egyptian name for mainland Greece. So we're looking, I think, actually, if you plot these on a map, and if you figure out where objects with Amenhotep III and his wife, Queen T, cartouches are found, you find them at Mycenae, you find them at Knossos. In fact, many of the sites that are listed on that statue base have objects of his with his cartouche on them at it, at there. So I think there's a link right there. In fact, if you plot it, here's the Scarab at Knossos. If you plot it, I think we might be looking at a geographical list. I don't know that he went, I don't know that he sent anybody, but if you look at the order, it actually looks like a trip from Egypt to Crete, then up to mainland Greece, then back to Crete, and then back to Egypt. in fact, I would suggest that maybe that's why Amnesos is on there twice. That's going to be one of the first places you hit when coming from Egypt up to Crete, right? So you know everybody off time to use the bathroom, get yourself a coke, right? And then you go up and you visit your old friends the Minoans, and you go up and you visit these newfangled Mycenaeans, and then you head back towards Egypt via Crete, and there you are at Amnisos, and you're like, okay, everybody out, last bathroom stop before we're you know another however many miles. So I, I don't know if I'm right, but I, I do like this idea of. Uh, a geographical itinerary. At the very least, uh, I think we can agree that this means that uh, New Kingdom Egypt at this time knew about the Minoans and the Mycenaeans. So there's no way they, they would have the names Knossos and Mycenae on the statue-based list if they didn't. Now, and in fact, if we go back to Ugarit, there's a text from about 1260 BC, the Cineranu text, and he it says here from the present day Amastamru son of Nikmeppa king of Ugarit exempts Sinaranu the son of Siginu his grain his beer his olive oil to the palace he shall not deliver his ship is exempt when it arrives from Crete so here we've got textual evidence from the 13th century of a guy sending a ship from coastal Syria to Crete and bringing back grain beer and olive oil but he is exempt Right? I think this is probably the very first um, corporate tax exemption in history. <laughs> and then, of course, we have the Ula-Burun shipwreck, which is familiar to everyone in the room here. It sank about 1300 BC. I'm not going to go into the details. George Bass and Jamal Pulik, who have been excavating it, can do that far better than I can. Uh, just point out that we've got, in addition to the stone anchors, we've got about 300 of these copper oxide ingots. Uh, this would have been uh, king's fortune back then. In fact, there's enough, uh, let's see, there's about 10 tons of copper and a ton of tin. You could make enough bronze to outfit 300 soldiers with swords and shields and helmets and everything else you need. But that's not the only raw goods on here. You've got tin. You've got um, the upper right, blue glass raw blue glass. You've got terebinth resin down in the lower left corner from the pistachio tree, ivory from elephant and hippopotamus, and then unused brand new Canaanite uh, and Cypriot pottery. This ship for me is a microcosm of the Late Bronze Age. You've got at least seven different civilizations represented in their goods, both finished goods and raw materials. Right There's even some Uh, Italian stuff and maybe a stone mace from the Balkans as well. So they have postulated that this ship is going round and round and round. I'm not so sure. It may actually be a gift from one king to another or anything else is quite possible. I actually think maybe it was on a shopping expedition right? being sent from Mycenaean Greece. Um, We need some copper and some tin and, and while you're out get some milk as well. So who knows? A, but we have things like these texts from uh, from the Amarna letters where it says, I will bring to you as a present 200 talents of copper. Now, if one of those oxide ingots is a talent, then on the ula Brunshep, you've got 300 talents. So uh, these numbers are not all that incredible. So I would use bronze, the tin plus the copper, as just one example of the globalized world back then. And again, I would ask, what do you think would happen if this trade route was cut at any point, and you can't make bronze anymore? Well, that's in part why they're going to go to iron, uh, as other people have suggested. Now, let me sum up. I've, I've gone on long enough, but let me sum up by pointing out three things with which I don't think you will have any argument. Okay? Point number one. Are we all agreed that there are a number of separate civilizations that were flourishing back in the late Bronze Age, right? We're all agreed with that. Hittites, Canaanites, Mycenaeans, Minoans, all those, all those good people. Right, that is inarguable. They were independent, but they were also interacting with each other, especially through trade. So I think that's point number one that nobody is going to argue with. Number two, it's pretty clear that many of the cities were destroyed and that these civilizations kind of came to an end. Uh, as the life as they knew it, and it's somewhere around 1177 BC, right? We all agree with that as well. Now let me point out here that 1177, apart from the fact the original title was 1186, uh, it's also, it wasn't my idea, right? The publisher said, trust me on this. I'm like, no, 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 it should really be, you know, the ending came about a century, it took a while. He says, that's not a good title. I'm like, but civilization didn't really end in 1177. He's like, I know that, and your readers will know that too, but you need something to catch them. right? So basically the idea is that we know that the, uh, the collapse took place over about 100 years. right? I already said 1,200, 1,100, 1,000, very, very different. So uh, if the collapse takes place about, over about a century, I would actually use 1177 as a, nice, as a shorthand. Right, when you're talking about the Late Bronze Age Collapse. And this is the time that Ramses III says that the Sea Peoples came through for the second time. So just like when you're talking about the Roman Empire. Right, Roman Empire ends, everybody knows, in what 476. Right? Except it didn't. Right? It, it took most of the 5th century. And even then, you've still got the Eastern Roman Empire going. Uh, and, but 476 is shorthand for the fall of the Roman Empire. So my goal is to make 1177 shorthand for the fall of the late Bronze Age, supplanting 1200, which is too round of number. So I'm well aware that it did not come to an end in 1177, but I'm using that as shorthand. In fact, some of the cities like Megiddo and Lachish may not have come to an end until about 1130. So there is this about a century that comes along. But still, I think we will all agree that everybody or many people get destroyed eventually. But I think you'll also agree with point number three, there's actually been no proof as to what caused this. Right? There's nothing that everybody agrees on. We can you know, talk until the cows come home about the various possibilities, but there is no one thing. All right, we're all agreed on that. And yet, people still talk about this linear progression. Oh no, it's still it's drought, famine, uh, rebellion, cutting the trade routes, and that ends to collapse. I I think it's a lot messier than that. Nothing is ever that linear, right? So going back to our nice little globalized tick, 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 where everybody is interacting with everybody else, tossing just a little bit of chaos in there, right? And then you've got chaos theory and everything else that you can talk about. But in the end, everybody disappears except for Egypt, and even they are pretty weakened. And then, of course, Ramses III, the great hero who beat the Sea Peoples, gets himself assassinated in a harem conspiracy right not a, not a very great end so when people um, you know say to me so what do you think the driving force was was it you know was it earthquakes i say yeah they say, well was it drought i say yeah i say was it famine i say yeah i say was it invaders i say yeah they said yeah, which one i'm like no all of them because people couldn't you know People have survived famines. right? People have survived droughts. People have survived earthquakes. People have survived invaders. But what if you're not surviving just one, but two of those, or even three of those? And this is what I think we've got. I think we've got a perfect storm, where um, if they had just had earthquakes, maybe they would have survived. If they had just had famine, maybe they would have survived. Right. It's kind of like the anti-Dienu, right? It's not enough. Right? So and when they do go down, they go down like dominoes. So I, I think that they were dependent on each other enough that when the Mycenaeans fell, it would have impacted the others. Certainly when Cyprus went down, it would have impacted the others. So I think we really are looking at a perfect storm. In fact what we're looking at is a systems collapse, right? And if you look at a systems collapse, it's when the entire central administration collapses, the elite, the traditional elite disappears, uh, the centralized economy goes you know, downhill, and you've got all kinds of population shifts. And I think this is a classic example of a systems collapse. And the definition here, which it goes back to like Colin Renfrew in 1979, it usually takes about a century There's usually a dark age that happens right afterward. And when they're coming out of that dark age, they start immortalizing the great period behind or before them. right? I mean, think of Homer talking about the Iliad and the Odyssey and all of that. So I think we are looking pretty much at a systems collapse. Now, that's fine and dandy, but you know, One of the things that I like about archeology span and ancient history is I do think there are lessons that it can teach us if we're just willing to listen. So in this case, what lesson can we learn? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think we are facing today the same situation that they faced back in about 1200? Yeah, how many would say yeah? How many would say no? All right, well, let me ask you. Is there maybe climate change going on today? Maybe we could have a whole debate about that, right? All right, all right, how about the easier? Are there famines and droughts that are going on from place to place? How about earthquakes? We got earthquakes. Uh, rebellions? Yeah? I think the only thing that we're missing is the Sea Peoples. <laughs> and in fact, as somebody at one of my other audiences says, they said, don't you think that ISIS is, is our modern day version of the Sea Peoples? Which is possible, possible. Let me put it another way. Um, if you've been reading the newspapers for the last two years, the headlines—just ripped straight from the headlines—include: Greece's economy is tanked. Right? We're all agreed they're still in trouble. We were talking about that at dinner tonight. Right? There internal rebellions in Libya and Egypt um, and Syria. There's invaders and foreign warriors fanning the flames. Turkey is afraid it's going to be involved. Israel's afraid it'll be dragged in. Jordan is crowded with refugees. Iran is bellicose, Iraq is in turmoil, right? These this are all ripped from the headlines, right? The last two years or so. Now what about the headlines from 1200 BC? Pretty much the exact same thing. So I'm saying there are more parallels to the fall back then um, than to today that you might expect. So I do think that we're more technologically advanced, obviously. Um, but that doesn't mean we're immune. Right? There's every, every civilization that's been around has collapsed up until now. So why should we be immune? The difference is that we can maybe recognize it. I'm not sure that the Hittites were able to recognize their imminent collapse, though they may well have. Uh, the difference is, though, that we can maybe do something about it. But that's not for me to decide. I look at ancient history. Somebody else has to figure out how we're going to survive. But I want to end not on a downer, but on an an up note. So I would say that there is a silver lining, right? There always is in every cloud. Um, Because the Bronze Age civilizations did come to an end, it created a power vacuum in this region. And we get new peoples then, like the Israelites and the Phoenicians and the Aramaeans. And because they establish themselves, we get things like the alphabet, we get monotheism, and then, like in Greece, eventually, we get democracy. So I would say that out with the old and in with the new and that sometimes you need a wildfire. And a wildfire will clear away the undergrowth of an old-growth forest and allow it to uh, thrive anew. So, the collapse of the Late Bronze Age was terrible for them, but not so bad for us. And with that, I thank you.